Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It is garbage truck day. There will be garbage. Better get used to the idea. And let's see. We've got a Zoom meeting. Let's go for it. Zoom. Join meeting. Zoom. Join meeting. Here's the meeting with Stan. What's going on, Marshall? You ready for season three? Hey, Stan, it's season three of the Draftsman Podcast, and we are ready for it. This is going to be a wow thing. <laughs> wow, good Yay, job. You sold it. Et cetera. Don't get them too excited. Yeah. It's not going to be that good. Yeah. <laughs> haven't seen you in a while. You have a, do you have a different beard or anything than what I'm used to? <laughs> yeah, I bought a new one. Um, yeah. No, what do you mean? It's the same thing. It's the That's s- the same Van Dyke. It's a, yeah, okay. It's the same stubble I've always had. Um, I, I, ha- I have a haircut from a different barber. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's it. <laughs> you looked a little different to me, but I've been looking at pictures of you from way back, even six, seven years ago, and it's... Yeah, so I just look older now, huh? Yes, you yeah. are. How's family life? Great. Quinn is getting older. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Remember how I was bragging that she was sleeping all, all like all night? <laughs> yeah, I guess <laughs> she heard ended. you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that ended like the day after. Uh, she, I guess she went through. She's been going through a growth spurt or something. She also got her vaccines and stuff. Her shot, her like three month shots. Mm-hmm. That like the next day, and and that like. Threw her off. If it throws off Quinn, <laughs> it throws off the parents as well. <laughs> yep. It's fine. We're doing all right. It's just sleep. Who needs it? Yeah. You don't need it. What about you? Any updates to your, you know, you've been mostly teaching your own workshops, right? Yeah. Lots of teaching. And you know, last year, uh, draftsman listeners and I got together for not only classes, but also a museum trip. And we hung out at the Getty. What? And uh, we didn't know that within two months, that would be the end of that. When did you guys go? Before the lockdown. Oh, okay. We hung. This was like a a number of us hung out at the Getty. It was a great time. Mm -hmm. But we didn't have any idea that it was going to be the end of it and that there were no more museums. That's really the only thing I miss about going out is going out to museums. But this last month has been a little bit of that. I did a 
perspective workshop that ended up mm. being more of a boot camp for the amount of work that people did. And right now I'm doing a composition boot camp, which I'm doing all I can to make it more of a workshop. But with an emphasis on work, students are working on their composition skills. So I am hanging out with, uh, with Draftsman listeners. And I'm also doing a class with Vance Kovacs. And it's called Concept Art Bootcamp. And he has been demoing for us. We, just, we had our second class last night. Uh, it's been a wonderful little group with some really gifted students. And so, yeah, I am teaching and also the semesters have started at the community college. So, I'm in the throes. You're back teaching, right teaching at community college. I thought you, uh, yes. you left that. There are two schools I was teaching at that I'm no longer teaching at, but I am still teaching at my junior college. Fullerton Community College, the one that I went to. I'm still teaching two classes there. I didn't know you were teaching at three colleges. I've taught at four colleges regularly. I mean, as regular colleges. Well, Marshall, that that was a great segue into our topic today. What is our topic? We're, we're going to be talking about different ways you can be an artist and have mm -hmm. a career doing that. Um, and yes. you looks like you're you're in a transition right now from mm -hmm. pretty much being employed or somewhat. I mean, you're probably a contractor at all these schools, right? Uh, yeah. I've been a part-time employee at every school, which means that there's no guarantee that you're going to be there next. Yeah. So, you're transitioning now from employee slash freelancer to entrepreneur. You're starting your own business. You're teaching your own workshops, organizing them on your own, marketing them on your own, teaching them, executing them on your own, taking payments. You're, you're, yeah. a, you're an entrepreneur now. So, you're transitioning yeah. from these two to this one. Um, and this is what this episode is about. Well, good. It's going to be great to hear your perspective on it. Well, I'm happy to <laughs> tell you anything that I have to tell you, which could be too much <laughs> because... I've been a freelancer for 40 some years and uh, probably will be for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. And you're not a freelancer. You are, how do you define yourself? An angel? No, no. An, an entrepreneur? <laughs> yes. I mean, um, I, I also went through a transition at one point in my life. I, mean, I taught at a school. I've done commissioned work, which is you know, I was a freelancer. Um, I've been at galleries, which is basically, I guess, also a freelancer. I don't know. Yeah, we got to define all this stuff. And we will, but uh, after we tell our own life stories here, I guess. Um, and, and I mean, soon after that, I started my own business. And since then, I, I guess I define myself as an entrepreneur. I think of you as an entrepreneur. Now, <laughs> last year at this time, we did eight episodes on art school as project which seems to have had an effect on people, Yeah, uh, I hope for good. Whereas, if we take up the subject of how to have an art career, developing your art career, we've talked about that a lot already. So, I guess out of what have we done? How many episodes of Draftsman have we done so far? I could check real quick. 65. And so many of those 65 episodes were are related directly to or indirectly, like the art education thing is assuming you're getting an art education so that you can have a career. Yeah, we have. We, we've obviously, there's no way we could have done two seasons without talking about 
working as an artist and your career. I, but we've ne- it's funny we've never actually done an episode dedicated to it. Yeah, we did. We we talked we about <laughs> alternative ways to make money as an artist, I think, in one of those. Marshall, why didn't you say this when we were planning this episode? I did say this when we were planning this episode. You I didn't it. say we, making we've money. We've already taken this off. I'm looking at the description. <laughs> Let's. It okay, doesn't well, mean that to... because we've done it once that we can't do it again. It's a principle in life. Maybe yeah. we'll do it better. Maybe we won't. Yeah. But let's let me say this: eight episodes on art school as project. Getting your art education, hard as it is, is not as hard as getting a career. First, let's start by defining the three levels of independence. It's something I made up. I don't know if if this is the, there's only three levels of independence or there's one I'm missing or something, but whatever. Let's do it. This is it. The least level of independence is what? Employment. <laughs> yeah. Why? Why is that such a low level of independence? I mean, because you're basically the person or the company employing you tells you what to do, how to do it, um, when to do it, where to do it. Well, with an anti-sales pitch like that, why would anybody want employment? There's a lot of reasons. I mean, some people think job security. I disagree. But that might be a thing. It depends on where you're you're going. Another one is structure. You know, some people, they need the structure to go to, you know, the structure of a school to learn. Um, Some people might need the structure of a company to do work. You know, they maybe it depends on your personality. You might not want to run your own business. Yeah. It's really about what you want. Do you just want to like go to work, do your thing, make some money and then enjoy your outside life that, you know, you don't really care about money. You just want to make enough to do all the other stuff that you want to do and enjoy life, enjoy your family. Um, then that's for you, right? Structure. I want to say something about that, about yeah. the uh, employment level. Yeah. I did. I had one full-time job which I began at the age of uh, 50-something and it lasted for less than three years. It was teaching online for theartdepartment.org. And when it began where I was on salary, I was aware I don't have to market. I don't have to keep track of, of how the money is coming in and going out in the same way that I did before. I have much less responsibility. All I've got to do is think about the art and the teaching and that was the best thing about it. Yeah. To know that I got to do the work that I loved without having to run the business. Yeah. It made me a little lazy so that when it ended and I had to run my business again, it's like, oh, the responsibility comes back. Yeah. But that was a good thing about employment. I started to see why people want a job for the structure the security of knowing that the bills will be paid because that money's coming in. Yeah. Yeah. There's benefits as well. I mean, people get health insurance, people get, um, you know, paid time off, maternity, fraternity leave. You know, oh, there, There's a bunch of benefits to, to being an employee. But yeah, there, there's a lot of good stuff about it. You know, the business takes care of the business and you yeah. take care of the art, whatever your role is. Yeah, you could even take employment as a category and break it up into all sorts of different kinds of subcategories about working for big companies, working for yeah, small companies. True. Now that it used to be that companies would not let you work at home remotely and so many concept artists wanted to 
so that they didn't have to make the commute to LA or whatever else. Yeah. And it was just typically not allowed except with a few superstars. And now that it's been forced, companies I think are seeing, yeah, there is an advantage to this. And so that will become more the case that you work for a company and you are able to work from home, less driving. Yeah, companies have been forced this year, last year to develop systems for making it work remotely. You know, they didn't have reasons before to, you know, pour money into making it work. And now they have. And now, why not keep using it for its benefits? Yeah, I'm glad about that. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a good thing overall, I think, for, for employment. Um, freelancing is the next one. You're now not controlled by any one company. You can hop around. You can choose who your clients are. Um, and so you have a little bit more independence, um, but still your 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 clients decide kind of what you're doing because they give you the the job, um, they they give you the task. And here's what I want. Mm-hmm. Of course, you can structure it. If you're in demand, you could choose whatever you you want. Mm-hmm. You, but now all of a sudden you have to start doing your own taxes. You got to figure all that stuff out, um, and you have to market yourself. You got to make sure that you're constantly getting new clients. This is where I have the most to tell about the woes and glories of freelancing. (laughs) But uh, the security thing, the the worst thing about freelancing at the beginning is is trying to get people to hire you Mm -hmm. and then trying to get enough people to hire you where it really is uh, a career. But if you've got a number of people hiring you, in 2008, there was a serious recession in this company and I couldn't believe how many people were losing their jobs. People who had been in secure jobs for decades and my son was still in high school and he observed me and he just pointed out, you've you've diversified your clients to where you've got 15 to 20 people who are hiring you for one thing or another. So that if some of them go down, it doesn't mean that your whole career goes down. So there is another thing about freelancing is that there will always be new clients and there'll always be some lost clients. But if there's a client base, as people call it, that you've got enough that are regular, then there can be some security in it that way. Yeah. Freelancing is like getting a train moving. It's really hard to get it moving. But once it does get moving, one thing leads to another. That's true. And, and right now, it is easier to get that stuff moving because of the internet and social networks and all that stuff. If you if you start early, even while you're in school, growing your social media, um, by the time you're ready for it, you you might just jump right in. And maybe you'll be able to jump right in even before you're ready for it. Um, I know that even, you know, yeah. I got some work, I don't even know how, when I was really young, um, you know, I had a website with my portfolio on it and, you know, back then, like, I guess there weren't, you know, the, the internet wasn't as filled with, you know, millions of artists with their portfolios. Back then, web making a website was actually kind of hard. Uh, they didn't have Squarespace mm-hmm. and all those things. You had to build it yourself. Yeah. I had to use HTML and build my website. And, and so, like, people found my website looking for artists and they hired me. And I was like 1920 or maybe like 2021 or something like that. And I was hired to do an animation for a music band or for a music band, <laughs> for a band. <laughs> you know, one of those music type bands. Um, a yelling band. <laughs> 
<laughs> yes. Um, no, no, they weren't a yelling band. But yeah, they hired me to make a, a 3D music video for them with, an, you know, fully 3D animated. And then another team was trying to get an Orson Scott Card movie made. You know, Orson Scott Card? Yes. Ender's Game, right? Yeah, Ender's Game. So they they were no, but they they were trying to make a different movie made. I forgot what the the what it was called. It's based on one of his books. It never got made. Uh, basically, what they needed at the time was an artist to kind of create the vision for it, and and then pitch it to investors and stuff to to get the movie off the ground or studios. But like that project never got finished. They they didn't have much of a budget. You know, I learned pretty quickly. Like this whole freelance thing is like really messy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it is. I was just getting discovered just because I had a website. Like, I wasn't even that good yet, you know? Um, uh-huh. But now it's, I think it's even easier with social media to, to grow. Even freelancing, like employment, there's so many subcategories of what kind of company you work for. Yeah. With freelancing, most of my freelancing was for advertising agencies. Whereas if you are a freelancer for animation studios, or movie studios, it will be a different set of dynamics. But let's go back to what happened with ad agencies. Mm-hmm. You would have three or four jobs that were on hold. We're definitely going to use you for this. It's going to start <laughs> yeah. in a week, maybe two weeks. And so yep. you're waiting. And then all of a sudden, three jobs happen. They say go. And these are pressurous jobs where you're going to be devoting your life to. Three of them happen all at once. What do you do yeah. in a case like that? And one thing that you can do is work with friends that are going to help you say, I'm going to have a real crunch doing three jobs at a time. And then your studio, you're sharing the work to get things done, which means that then you're starting to grow your business as a freelance, right? Uh, as a freelance studio. Interesting. So, it's like a cooperative of artists. But you, Would yeah. they work under your name? Like, would you submit the work as Marshall or would you say, hey, I know you hired me, but I actually had my friend do it? It would, it would depend. It would depend on the on the circumstances. Uh, I couldn't do a children's book, but my friend did a children's book and I helped him with it. And it was his name was on the children's book, not mine, but I helped him airbrush and he shared some of the money with me. And okay. the client doesn't care. All they know is that it looks what like what they expected yeah. from the portfolio piece. Right. Uh, but it was different at different times. And yeah, we over the years, we learned how to deal with that. But let me mention something that just happened recently. Uh, because of the lockdown, mm-hmm. is that live action television and live action movie production grinded not to a halt, but it just almost stopped. Yeah. There were something like 400 live action productions going on in Los Angeles and vicinity uh, before the lockdown. And then within a matter of a few weeks after it, it was there were 30. <laughs> but at the same time, animation studios were well, we got to finish this season. We got to finish this show. Why don't we do it as animation? My students, many of whom work in animation, were suddenly in a position where they were having to turn down opportunities because there was such a sudden surge of need for animation work. Uh, And not necessarily animation. I mean, the peripheral stuff around it, visual development, storyboarding, uh, Mm. all that kind of stuff. Wait, why did they go all of a sudden to different artists? Why couldn't they use the artists that they had in-house but now just use them remotely? What's I don't understand why they had to go out searching for new artists. Because production did not slow down with animation. Production amped up 
And so all of a sudden, a person who may only have one client, now we need more people, we need more people. And so there were more opportunities. Why did the lockdown make animations amp up? I don't see the connection. Because animation can be done entirely with remote production. Animation as it is right now, you do not have to have people on a set with cameras. So because they weren't working on these live action things anymore, they're starting to use the resources on these animation projects. They, they kind of shifted people over there. Yeah. Like the directors and writers and all that stuff or whatever. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. For three or four months this summer, when I was keeping in touch with my students in the animation and former students in the animation industry, uh, one after another was telling me there's more work than ever and everything's going fine with the company and and on and on. So it was... Uh, that was different than the way it worked with advertising agencies is that sometimes if you are a freelancer for a particular industry, even though you're not employed by a single company, there are still waves of opportunities and and sudden pulling away. Now we're not doing this anymore. Less on uh, movies. People who do movies for live action are still working because movies can take a year sometimes on these big budget productions of pre-production. So it doesn't make that much difference. But when it came to TV, the people working in TV, what do you do when all of a sudden the stuff that is supposed to come out every week, live action, you've halted production? Yeah. No, that, no that's that's really interesting actually. I didn't know that. That's that's cool. Um, the only thing uh, I want to add with freelance is just give people a few resources. Um, one we already mentioned, but I just, every time I come back to it, I'm just like, it just, it, it, it amazes me every time. It's like, it doesn't get worse. It is the make good art speech. Um, yeah. Neil you know, Gaiman? Yeah, by Neil Gaiman. It, like I listened to it again bef- just to prepare for this episode just because it's like, oh, well, you know, freelancing, well, <laughs> make good art speech because <laughs> yeah. he basically just gives six, um, um, what do you call it, six uh, tips on freelancing and then the last one or the, yeah, the sixth one was secrets of freelance, um, which was, you know, that in order to succeed, you need two out of the three qualities. That, that's the one that we always mention. But there's actually six things that he talks about throughout that speech. Can you list the six things? Yeah, I, I actually took notes on it this last time I, I listened to it again. Um, so, the first one, when you start a career in the arts, you have no idea what you're doing. So, that's that was the first thing. And then he goes into detail about it. I don't want to, I don't want to like give a detailed summary of the whole thing. The second thing is if you have an idea of what you want to make, just go and do that. Third, when you start off, you have to deal with the problems of failure. You need to be thick-skinned to learn that not every project will survive. 
Mm-hmm. Fourth, I hope you'll make mistakes. If you're making mistakes, it means you're out there doing something and the mistakes in themselves can be useful. And then he goes to talk about some examples. Oh, that's so how. encouraging. Yeah. Uh, fifth or fifthly, <laughs> while you are at it, make your art do the stuff that only you can do. So, make your art, make the stuff you can do. Um, and then the sixth was you need two out of the three qualities. You need to have either good work, uh, you're easy to get along with or you deliver your work on time. You need two out of the three. Yeah. Yeah. And just the way he delivers that speech is really inspiring. Okay. Let's move on. Yeah. We, we mentioned this, this speech like five times already in our <laughs> podcast. I know we have. But I can't imagine anyone <laughs> who's going to go into the arts who has not spent time with Neil Gaiman's speech and made notes on it and talked about it with friends. Yeah. If you haven't, go listen to it. I don't want to discuss it anymore. <laughs> it yeah. like, just go listen to it. It's not long. Yeah. It's like 10 minutes. Um, and the second resource I want to suggest is Seth Godin's freelance course. Tell me. Honestly, I personally have not taken this course. It's on Udemy, I think. Um, but I have heard him talk a lot about freelance from his, uh, you know, his books. I listen to his podcast all the time. And everything he says about freelancing is, um, it's, it's really good. I, I, I love it. And so, I'm pretty sure his course is good. <laughs> but well, just he, that, he charges yeah. about $200 for it? 200 bucks, yeah. I haven't taken it either. But I agree with you. I trust him. Yeah. Because he offers such generous insight and also insight that that really is new and surprising sometimes where you I haven't heard that from another teacher. Yeah, I trust everything he does so far. I've always been like, yeah, that's awesome. That's great. And so, if you want to go into freelancing, Seth Godin does have a course on it. Try it out. Let me know if it's good. Uh, let me know what you learned from it. Uh, yeah. Um, you want to move on to the third one? We said this episode is going to be about entrepreneurship. Yeah. Let's move to entrepreneurship. <laughs> yes. All right. What is it? Okay. Basically, uh, I forgot who defined it. Like, I think it was Seth Godin. He said, it's creating something bigger than yourself to make money while you sleep. I think he said that somewhere. I don't know where he, I heard it. That's good. Yeah. Well, th there's many types of entrepreneurship, but ba mostly it's built around, you know, a, a business that provides either a product or a service um, to either another business or to a consumer. Mm -hmm. As a business grows, it becomes much more than the person that started the business. It's not just about you, the freelancer, you, the employee. It's now this company does this thing um, and it becomes about the product or the service that it offers. Mm -hmm. And in order to scale it up, you know, you have to separate yourself from it. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's kind of the challenge is how do you how do you do that? Well, you have done that. So you and you've given it a lot of conscious thought. Uh the difference between how you did it and I did it is that I did not set out to be an entrepreneur. I simply set out to find anyone who would pay me anything to draw anything because I wanted to draw and I wanted an excuse to justify it. But I wasn't thinking, oh, I'm going to build my my business. It was much more slapdash than that. Whereas Marshall, you seem you're like you me too were... much credit. Listen, I started yes with a dream of building a company. But when I when I started making the YouTube videos, or really when I started making my blog posts, I didn't know that it would it could potentially grow to have a team of people and like 
and collaborating with with companies and and a platform with where other artists could uh, you know I did not have all of this stuff in mind. I was just making tutorials. I was teaching yeah. people for free. Like Yeah, so this is Neil Gaiman's first point, which is you don't yeah, know what you're go. doing. Just go, yeah, start, just go. Just start, yeah. fail, you know, mess up, just keep going. Mm-hmm. You know what you, you think you want to, you know what you do? You don't, it's okay. Just start doing something. Mm-hmm. And then it could grow. I mean, okay, you right now, all you're trying to do is uh, find people who will pay you to teach them something, right? Mm-hmm. Composition, yes. storytelling, perspective, whatever. Once you start, do, you know, growing that and you have way too much demand, you're going to have a problem of how can you now scale yourself and you're going to start looking for solutions to that and you will find those solutions and that will cause, you know, that's when your business starts growing and it becomes more than your current goal of finding someone that'll pay you. Because it's in motion. Yeah. But that's the thing. I, I think a lot of people, yeah, they, they're, they're intimidated maybe of the word. Mm-hmm. And thinking that they don't know as much of, as, about business and entrepreneurship as, as other people. And so, they they, they, it, they kind of freeze up and they, they don't do it. They don't even try. Yeah. And that, you know, it's it's okay. It's all about failure. Really, the only way to learn is to fail. Um, it, the, the, the trick is to fail fast. Mike Moran's do it wrong quickly. <laughs> do, it do you know about that? <laughs> Why does that sound so funny? It's like it sounds like bad advice. Yeah, but uh, it's the best. It's, it's, that's the second point or second or third point <laughs> Neil gave at me. Yeah, do it wrong really quick as much as possible. Should we talk a little bit more about failing fast? If you have more to say, uh, yes. You know, we do quick sketch, right? At, when, as figurative artists, we, we do quick sketch because it allows us to practice certain concepts very quickly. Every three to five minutes, you're practicing gesture or you're practicing mannequinization or you're practicing proportions or you're, whatever it is that you're practicing within your quick sketches. Um, you're able to fail, 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 fail every three to five minutes and, and get feedback on that and um, the, the same concept can apply to, to growing a business, to doing whatever. Anything you're trying to learn, you go out there and you fail fast. Don't have these giant ambitions in the beginning like, you know, before you even learn how to do, you know, draw a quick sketch gesture, go, setting out to do a, a 50 foot mural, <laughs> you know what I mean? Start yes. with those quick sketches, those gestures. So, when you go into business, start with little things. Start learning little things like that that you can try out quickly um, and fail and learn and then you keep growing on top of that. Don't set out mm-hmm. on this huge 20-year mission unless you already kind of know what you're doing. Um, and don't be afraid to realize that you're doing something that's going to fail. Um, I mean, that doesn't mean just like give up on everything you do but sometimes you just got to you gotta say, okay, no, this didn't work. Let's learn from it. Let's move on to something else. Mm-hmm. You know, follow through, learn the lesson and keep going but... Um, just because you started something does not mean you have to spend more time to continue with a failure. When I see students setting out to freelance, which now is almost always on the internet, uh, as happy as I am for students who get jobs in companies, there is something particularly exciting knowing the difficulties ahead. 
that still, this is your product. Not everybody's inclined, Stan. Not everybody really, it's not just the word entrepreneurship that scares some people. It's that they really don't have that kind of a spirit. It is more important mm. to them to have structure. But there is a way to, okay, yeah. uh, there is a way that I gauge this pretty quickly. A number of the classes that I do, the first assignment is to design your own project. In fact, that it's the title of composition, perspective, design your own project. And a lot of students have a tough time. I don't know. I don't know how to design my own project. Well, here's some helps. What is it that you wish you could do for money? What is it that you would say, this is the project I wanted to do even if I wasn't taking this class? This is what I do if I wasn't bound by a class. Now, can you define that? and then make it fit what we're doing with the criteria on this class. And some people do get excited about that. And when they do, those are entrepreneurs. They know how to say, I'm going to start with my desires like Neil Gaiman, uh, Neil Gaiman talked about. I want to start with what I have to offer and what I want and then see is there a way to develop this so that it fits this class or fits a market where people would pay for it. But that is a that is a test of an entrepreneurial spirit. If a person says, I like designing my own project. If a person says, I need someone else to tell me what to do, to me, that's sort of a watershed tipping point of, of this person is more inclined toward entrepreneurship and a person less inclined. Wouldn't that also be a good test of whether this person is a good artist? No. Not craftsman, not just someone who can, who can execute correctly, but a good artist. Yeah. A good composer. Yes. A good person who makes decisions because one bears the re entrepreneurship bears the responsibility of making a decision and and taking responsibility for the decision. Yeah. Whereas the desire to I don't want to do that means that you might say, I would rather have someone else make the decision and let me just carry through the work. An artist versus a craftsman. I see what you're getting at. Being an artist is all about Problem solving, isn't it? Yeah. It's about making decisions. So is business. Yeah. Starting a company. Like, it's all about problem solving and creativity to solve problems. Yeah. Um, you could define the problems. Like, it's also about asking the right questions with art and yeah. with business. But you know, all of that kind of goes together. Um, you have to be brave enough to even search for the right questions and then attempt to answer them correctly. Mm-hmm. With both of them, I see those very closely related. I do too. I think that if you're if you're composing with art, which is how, you're going to make it art because you say I sh I think it should be this way. You pull back up and you say I'm also composing my projects and my career. But here is a way where it can become symbiotic. Okay. A person who loves to make decisions often cannot carry through with all those decisions because there's too much of the actual labor to be done for one person to do it. Mm. And a person who loves to have someone else give them structure, if the two get together, if one person says, I can use you because you can, I can pay you to, or give you a percentage of this if you can carry through with the things I can't do. Another person says, you can bear the weight of responsibility for this and I will do everything I can to contribute to it. Those are symbiotic relationships between those two, two uh, types of personalities. 
Yeah. Now, are you talking about business or, or being an artist in, in that specific situation? I'm talking about when you're a student in school. Yeah. And you don't like it when the teacher lets you design your own project. He doesn't yeah. tell me what I'm supposed to do. Okay. Versus when you're in school and the teacher does define the project and you say, why would I bother to do that? I got my own ideas for a project. Those <laughs> yeah, are two okay. opposite personalities, yes. both of whom are students that can be complementary to each other. Okay. And then what does that suggest? Let's let's say that the people listening right now have now identified which of those two groups they, they fit into, what they naturally react to in, in, in those situations. Uh-huh. What does that mean for both of those? Which, does that mean they should either become, you know, uh, employees, try to look for a company to work for or become an entrepreneur? So, like advice for them? Yeah. Like, is the, does that suggest this personality type, does that suggest that they naturally fit better into one of these different types of uh, careers? I think it does. I think it's okay. a litmus test okay. or that I like to make decisions. So, yeah, advice would be to the one who likes someone else to give them structure is have such good craft that other people want you to do the work for them. Mm -hmm. And if you're the person who likes to make the decisions, then you've got personnel challenges. You've got how will you how will you pitch? How yeah. will you convince? How will you get the funding for? How will you get people to buy? There's it's a different level of responsibility. But you know some of the people who are best at designing the projects are not good at carrying them through. Because they're they're the creative thinkers. They might not not be good craftsmen, but they're the creative thinkers. So there there's two very different things here. You don't have to be good at both. That's right. A lot of entrepreneurs actually are not good at executing on the on the actual business. A lot of them are as well. The best ones usually are because then that makes them a better boss, mm -hmm. right? They can communicate with the people that they're working with um, and they know uh, how, what kind of tasks to assign. You know, like for example, and I might be going on a tangent again, but I like it. Um, you know, I learned how to edit making my videos first. I didn't know how to do it, but I learned the craft of it before hiring someone to do it for, you know, for me. Yes. By, by knowing how to do that, I can then go communicate with them and I could be realistic with the way I'm talking to them. I'm, you know, if, if someone who knows nothing about editing goes to talk to an editor, they're going to give them assignments that are impossible. They're just like, they just don't make sense. They don't know what they're talking about. And people hate a boss like that. Yeah. And so, yeah, just being a good craftsman will make you a better boss as well, but it's not necessary. You can have the bigger vision and then you can have, you know, you can work with people that could take your vision and they know what to do with it as long as you trust them. Some of the best art directors I worked for had experience as illustrators. Uh, they knew what it was like. Uh, there were some very good art directors that had not had experience as illustrators. They were just good leaders. But there is that advantage to know the job of the people that you're working for. Yeah. Uh, okay. I, I, I get it. It's like the uh, CEO of a software company who started out coding and knowing yeah. how software works. Right. Yeah. They just make better decisions and communicate better. Okay. Let's, let's, let's back up and figure out how this fits yeah. together. I have something actually related to the failing fast. Go ahead. It's a really fun method, not fun, a very useful thing I came across um, actually like last week. Um, it's called the RRR method. 
RRR method. RRR. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about the RRR method. It stands for the risk reduction rate. Yeah. I'm worried. You know about the confirmation bias? Uh, confirmation bias is that what you already believe is going to affect your perception. Yes. Can we do a little experiment right now? And I just told sure. you what I, I I just told you what we're experimenting with, so I've pretty much ruined the experiment. Yeah. <laughs> but let's just see anyway. Okay. Let's give it a try. I saw a video by Veritasium where he does this experiment. Um, and he basically he goes up to people on the street and he, he asks he says, Okay, I have a rule in my head that I'm thinking about uh, related to numbers, mm-hmm. a sequence of numbers. I'm going to tell you the sequence of numbers and you got to figure out the rule. And the way you could figure it out is by telling me another, a different sequence of numbers that you think follows my rule and I'll tell you if it does or doesn't. And you can just keep guessing the, what you think the rule is, okay? Okay. A sequence of numbers that fits my rule is uh, one, two, four. Okay. Okay. So, now you got to figure out what my rule is by giving me other sequences of numbers uh, and I'll tell you if those also fit my rule or not. Okay. Well, I can think of two options. Just keep shooting them at me. Okay. The first one would be four, eight, sixteen. That does fit the rule, yes. Okay. Another one would be 10, 11, 13. Yes. That does fit the rule. Yeah. Those are the only two I can think of, but I was never good at math. You can attempt to define the rule at any point. Mm-hmm. And, and you, in order to get more clues as to what the rule is, you can keep giving me more sequences of numbers. Oh, okay. But it's a game. You just keep going until you figure out what that rule is. 5, 10, 20. That does follow the rule. Okay. Then it's doubling the numbers. No, that's not the rule. Keep throwing numbers at me. But these numbers that I throw at you have to make sense. And I'm, I'm having a difficult time swimming around in numbers. This is why I could not pass the algebra class when I was in, in <laughs> middle school. <laughs> this is not an algebra problem. You could throw whatever you want at me. Uh, 3, 5, 12. Yes, that does follow my rule. Is that right? How about <laughs> this one? 21, 30, 150. Yes, that follows my rule. I figured out the rule. Yeah, I got it. What's the rule? It's that each number has to be bigger than the one previous. Yes. <laughs> you figured it out. Good job, Marshall. <laughs> Mrs. Wenzel, see, I turned out okay after all. <laughs> oh. Yeah. So, you actually did pretty good. You, your trouble was actually figuring out that you could just, th- you know, throw numbers at me without being punished. <laughs> If I had said 21, 30, 18, it wouldn't have followed the rule, right? I would have said no, that does not follow the rule and you would have known immediately. Okay, then that, that verifies. Here's what happened in the video. Tell me. People, people would say like, uh, okay, so he said one, two, four. Okay, uh, three, six, twelve. And then he'd be like, yes. And then be like, ten, twenty. 40. And they'd be like, yes. And they'd be like, oh, it's doubling the numbers. And they'd be like, no. And they'd be like, what? Um, 100, 200, 400. And then he'd be like, yes. And he'd be like, but that does, but 
what do you mean? <laughs> That's and they'd keep confirming. They'd keep trying to confirm that they were correct. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? They didn't their yeah, their did. intuition wasn't to find out what was wrong, finding a failure. They were they keep trying to confirm their own yeah. belief of what the rule I is. And then I they were con- they were like surprisingly like what are you talking about? And he's just like, "Listen, you could you could like tell me whatever you want. You just keep testing theories and figure out what's wrong so that then you can figure out what's right. This makes so much sense now that you've explained it. And here's what was going on in my mind. It was exactly what this was meant to do. I had confirmation bias. My assumption was this is more challenging than it actually was. And the idea of the numbers just being big, I was seeing a pattern that I didn't even need to see. And so, I was trying to confirm that pattern. Okay, it makes total sense to me now and it does demonstrate it very well. Yeah. And your own belief about what what you thought the problem was, was debilitating you in figuring out the actual problem, right? Confirmation bias, yes. So, this same phenomenon, this thing that your brain just does happens everywhere, okay? After I learned about this, I analyzed the way I started businesses before. Okay, we're bringing it all back now, okay? And so, and I think I mentioned this before, the first few businesses I started, I would, I would get really excited about an idea mm-hmm. and then I'd be, I'd be so passionate about it, I would just start focusing all the, on the, all the exciting things. You know, I'd be like, oh man, I got to design a logo. What's the name of my company going to be? Oh, I got to print some business cards. Let's make a website for it. Let's make a cool flash design, you know, header on my website so that when people come on my website, they're all impressed. And it's like, well, how does your business work? (laughs) Stop trying to confirm, figure out ways why you are right. Figure out what are the ways your business can fail. Focus on that stuff so that you can solve those problems first, prevent yourself from failing, and so you can see the solution faster. (laughs) Stan, I've got a picture of the sun up here. It's a graphic design that I like. And I can't help but just look up at this picture of the sun and feel like it all (laughs) makes sense now. (laughs) Yeah. Our brain is an idiot. Our brain seeks confirmation. Yeah. And it makes us an idiot. It seeks pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. Confirmation is pleasure. It makes us feel good about ourselves. Um, And yeah, we want to confirm that we are right and we want to keep going down that line. But yeah, yeah, every problem, every project you begin, you, you need to begin it with the, the biggest risks first. That's what the RRR yes. method is. It's the risk reduction ratio or whatever it is. Okay, tell me. You look ahead and you think, okay, what are all the things that could potentially make this project fail? And the project can be as big or as little as, as you want. Mm-hmm. You write them all down. You figure out a task that would reduce the risk like, what can you do to reduce that risk? And then you, you give these, like, all these different ratings. You, you say, like, how long is this going to take? How, how much will it actually reduce the risk? You know, I'll, I'll, I could link to this article if people want to look at the details. But you, you give them these ratings and it takes, you know, for a project, like, this uh, process will take, you know, 30 minutes or something. But, but it'll save you a lot of time going forward yeah. because now you know what to focus on. And so, you, you give it all these ratings and then you sort it in order and now, and now it shows you, okay, this is the task you need to focus on. Um, 
to reduce the risk of this project. You know, so you could apply this to uh, an illustration. What's going to make this illustration fail? So, for example, with your business, uh, the logo and the website and all of those things are should be after the fact of yeah. there's a potential for making money here. Yeah. <laughs> that That's the, the, the big thing. And that's what I yeah. did with Proco. It was the first time out of like the five or six companies that I started that I actually did it. I didn't, I didn't know I was doing it. I was just so fed up at that point with my all the stacks of business cards I had that I didn't give away to anybody. I was like, yeah. screw business cards. I still don't have a Proco business card. I've never made Proco business cards. <laughs> like, and then my original Proco logo for the first like six years was really, it was a font. I opened up Photoshop. I went through a list of fonts I had. I picked one. That looks cool. I typed out Proco and that was my logo. Since then, yeah. you know, six years later, seven years later, we I actually hired a designer to to do something. Um, but yeah, I, I just I didn't care. I just launched my video. I focused on making the best quality video, trying to find an audience, and I, I did that, and it worked. It, I finally did it right at that point, and that's why it worked. This reminds me of what a therapist mentioned about uh, beginning a working relationship. Uh, I believe in listing your strengths. What do you bring to the team? And he said, don't forget also that it's important to list your weaknesses. And the reason being is that then you're aware of what the worst case scenario is and how to cover for it. And this is similar, right? That when we start out, what are the worst risks and how do we cover for them? And then that brings a sense of focusing on what's most important. That helps prioritize. Yeah. This was very good for me. This was clarifying. <laughs> the confirmation nice. bias is what makes us jump to the things we want to do mm -hmm. that might not be the most practical things, which is great. It's part of what Neil Gaiman is talking about. Do what you want to do, make part of that, but also at some point flip into the, uh, the black hat of those six thinking hats. Go from the yellow hat that says, oh, this is this is what I could do for a living and then go to the black hat. How could it go wrong? And then between those two, you can balance what your love is and what the real world might, how, how the real world might respond. I have another little tip I discovered recently that is almost like the opposite, but it's still very much related. It's instead of figuring out what are the, the biggest risks, it's figuring out what are the most important things that will lead to success. Yeah. And so, you you know about the 80-20 rule, right? Every, I think at this point, everyone's heard of, of that, right? 80, 20, Let like, me see if I can sum up. The 80-20 rule is that 80% of your carpet will have 20% of the wear and tear and 20% of your carpet will have 80%. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. So, the, the general principle is, you know, 20% of your efforts will will produce 80% of the results. Okay. Right? So, if you can identify what that 20% of the effort is that produces 80% of the results, you can focus on just that 20% of stuff and get 80% of the results from that. Yeah. Right? Um, so, that's a general principle. It's not always 80-20. Sometimes it's, you know, 70-30, yeah. sometimes 90-10, whatever. You get the idea. It's not like everything is one-to-one. -one. As far right. as effort versus result, it's that it's it's most things work very 
unbalanced in that way. You, you, there's some things you do that are extremely important. So, you can take that 80-20 rule and apply it to itself three times or as many times as you want. Okay. And compound it to figure out the 1% of effort that leads to 51% of the results. So, you don't have, it's not 20% of the stuff. Now, you're going down to like that tiniest, tiniest thing that will give you half of the results, okay, if you compound it three times. Let me give you an example because it, it just sounds like okay. we're just doing math here. Yeah, it, like, it, okay. it, it, it confused me mathematically. I, I, I don't disbelieve it but go ahead. Here's an example of actually applying that without using math. So, and this is an example that um, I heard this from Eric Partaker from uh, Pat Flynn's podcast and uh, yeah, I thought it was great. Um, so, about 20% or he, so he asked, what 20% about a restaurant will lead to 80% of the reason why customers are happy? And he came up with good food. Mm-hmm. You focus on good food, that'll determine 80% of why customers are happy. Then you, then you go deeper into that. Okay, with good food, what's the 20% of good food that will make people like it? Flavor. Okay. The flavor of the food. Okay. So, what 20% of the ingredients contribute to 80% of the flavor. Monosodium glutamate. (laughs) Yeah, sure. That leads to some successful businesses. Uh, No, but basically this led him to go to South America to source the best tasting chilies because I think he was doing, he was opening up a Mexican restaurant or something. Um, Or I don't know, sorry, I don't know what type of restaurant he was, but chilies was the ingredient that would make his particular recipes taste really good. So, he would he went there and he tasted, he found the best possible chilies directly from the farmers and so, he focused on that 1%, that one little thing and he got the best ones and he added that to his recipe. So, he, he thought the chilies were the key thing, that 1% that would lead to 50% of the result. So, you can apply this to art. You can apply this to anything. So, this is kind of like the opposite. Instead of looking for that, those biggest risks, you can use the 80-20 rule, compound it to look for that, that one big thing that you really need to focus on. And he's also finding an ingredient that other people don't even know about, which makes the flavor in the food at that restaurant unique. You're not going to get it somewhere else. Yeah, every restaurant doing this would kind of come up with a different solution as well, right? Everybody, this is kind of an art, art arbitrary thing. You're like, mm-hmm. well, what do you think is that one ingredient that produces the most flavor, you know, for your cuisine type? So, with artists and with entrepreneurs, uh, this comes back to branding and finding out what it is that you offer that no other freelancer or no other company or no other employee is going to be able to give this company. Yeah, exactly. And standing strong with that. Yeah, that's a huge thing is figuring out what your value is. What are you offering that is you? Mm -hmm. It's not always about going out there and trying to figure out what problems there are, which is an important part of of a successful business is there needs to be demand for it as well. But you, you also need to figure out, you know, is this the demand that these people have? Is this something that I'm actually the person to solve? Is this the value that I bring to the table? Um, you, you really do need to kind of dig deep and figure out what your strengths are and what you're excited to do. Digging down into it to find out what your strengths are, uh, that's something we can take up 
in another podcast is that this does not happen in a, oh, I watched the podcast. I listened to what they said about branding. I'm going to sit down. Boom, I wrote out what I have, my strength. There it is. Yeah. It doesn't happen that way. It takes time and, and assessment. Yeah, that, you're right. That would be a really good episode, wouldn't it? Just focusing in on one, that one thing and, and going deep into that. Okay, let's do that then. Let, let's yeah. make that an episode and let's move on at this point from that and, and carry on with it later. The topic is develop your art career. The big categories are to be an employee who has the least amount of freedom but the most supposed security, mm -hmm. to be a freelancer who has a number of clients and you have more control over jobs because you can say no to them and you can do them if you meet the deadline on your own terms. Uh, I mean, and uh, in your own schedule and in your own way. And then the third one is the, is the opposite of being an employee. It's to be an entrepreneur where you take responsibility for everything, but you also have the opportunity to steer in whatever direction you discern to be the best direction and you own it all. You just said in, in a minute or 30 seconds what we were trying to say <laughs> in the first 20. Now, since we're paused on this, you're asking me if I have anything else to add yeah. to it. If you if uh, you don't, I have several other paths we can go down, but um, I'm I don't interested. want to take over. Oh, keep going, Stan. So, another thing I wanted to bring up was good advice I heard from Ryan Holiday. He's the guy that wrote Ego's the Enemy and several other books, but um, I was listening to him on a on a on YouTube and, and he's he's talking about three levels of priority of how you measure your own success. And this is related to artists because, you know, so many of us now publish stuff online, our artwork, our, you know, we make videos, whatever your art is, we publish it online now a lot of the times, right? Mm -hmm. And we judge ourselves by th three different things. And the way we judge ourselves drives our actions as well. It reinforces what we do. And, and so, this is a really important thing. So, the, f the first level of priority of how you should judge yourself is how proud you are of this thing you made, okay? Um, and the reason is because you have full control of that. You decide if you're proud of it or not. You decide if this is important to you and if you did a good job doing it. You have full control. Nobody else can tell you to be proud or not to be proud. Right. The second level is measuring your success based on some kind of metric. Like how many likes you got on your painting that you posted. How many views you got on that YouTube video you posted. Right? It's And this you have partial control over, right? Like you might know your audience and you might know what they like and so you tailor your work to that. Um, you start kind of doing things in order to get more of that metric, right? So, you have partial control but still there's a little bit of randomness involved because it's other people giving you that those likes and, and those views yeah. and sometimes the algorithm might just pick it up and you get a million views and you're like, what the heck happened there? So, you have partial yeah. control but not full control. The third level of priority is based on some award you got. 
you know, like with YouTube, it'd be like the streamy awards, right? Some, yeah. Somebody decides that you got the best YouTube channel of the year. It's like someone yeah. just decided that you happen to be. And so, that is like completely out of your control. It is based on this one person or this one little group of people's opinion. The problem is a lot of us judge our success in reverse. We want that award. We want to be recognized by some committee. We want to win that, uh, you know, actors, they want to win an Oscar, right? Um, mm-hmm. If we're artists, we want to win that, that painting competition that is known as the biggest one it's in all the magazines or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's what we judge our success on. Like, I made it. So, we, we have yeah. it in reverse. But really, what's important is, is the other way around. And here's why. Uh, Ryan Holiday brought up, gave the perfect example, so I'm just going to use his. Okay. If you make a video, you post it online um, and it's just, you know, it gets a million views but all it does is it gets a chuckle out of somebody or, or, or out of all these millions of people. It's just, it's just like a little gag, like a little funny thing, a cat jumping and falling down or something. Cool. People laugh. It gets five million views. Mm-hmm. Didn't really make a big impact on anybody that watched it. Mm-hmm. Or the complete opposite. You post a video that only gets 5,000 views or 500 views, whatever, uh, much less than the other one, but it makes a really deep impact on those people that watched it. It can change some lives. It, you, it inspires them to do something meaningful, to change their life, whatever. You get it, right? It, it doesn't just make them chuckle. It teaches them something. It inspires them to take a, you know, change the life around, whatever. But it only got watched by 500 people. What's more valuable? Which video is more valuable? (laughs) And what should you focus your time on? Getting that one cat video that gets chuckle out of 5 million people or making that video that changes the 5,000 lives? That makes, uh, yeah. I mean, so, it's like, what what are you proud of? It's really, it's like you decide, you're definitely going to be more proud of, uh, but I mean, obviously, pride is also a personal thing. It's like what, you know, you might be more proud of 5 million views. But but still, there's there's a time where you feel like this is the best I could do and I did it. Yeah. And it's a good feeling. Yeah. So, that's an example of how metrics are not always valuable. I've noticed how often authors and filmmakers will say that that's the, I feel like that's the best work that I did, but it wasn't the most popular. And Often enough, when you go to the best work that that author claims, it really is. There's a reason why they feel so good about it. It just didn't strike a nerve with everyone. What do you feel about that you're most proud of that may not have uh, measured up? That may not have measured up by metrics? Yeah, that that Uh, you're more proud of it than the metrics. I have a great example and this is something I talked about before and this explains it perfectly. So, you know how I was talking about the anatomy course, mm-hmm. how I spent six years doing it. Anatomy is very specialized. It doesn't get as many views as if like I just focused on figure drawing or portrait drawing, you know, some mm-hmm. simple stuff. Th- that stuff gets way more views. I could focus on just entertaining people um, and, and focus on the views but I focused on anatomy because I was more proud of making these special video, specialized videos that I knew were helping students a lot. Yeah. It was hurting my channel because anatomy videos always get less views. I mean, I care. It's always like, ah, God, 
Why? Why again? I'm so happy with this video, but why is it less views? So, I care, of mm -hmm. course, but I always remind myself that like, I know this is important. Mm -hmm. I'm going to keep going anyway and I'm going to keep doing this for six years and keep hurting my channel a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, so, that, that's, an, that's a scenario where I didn't care about the metrics as much. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. What about you? Do you have any examples? Turn it around. Yeah, I've got, <laughs> I've got a number of examples, but one of the ones that I've mentioned over and over on this podcast and that is relevant to this topic is that lecture I did in 2014, that $4 lecture on design your career with a whiteboard. It is an unpolished production and it was in front of a group at the, at the community college with a number of uh, students who are now professionals uh, and it has not sold that well. And I think it's part of oh, it's only $4. How valuable could it be? But the reason I feel so good about it is because the content in there was as good as I could offer for if you've got one hour to be thinking about how you're going to use a whiteboard to make your career happen, here's what I can offer you, a list of metaphors to how to look at the whiteboard and also an awareness that it's not a magic instrument, but it's a really useful tool. Yeah, if there was any one thing that I had to say, that's what I've done so far that is certainly no impressive production. It feels like such a valuable mm -hmm. thing that when people have told me how it did, their life was pivotal, their career was pivotal just on what they got out of that one hour. That does make me feel good. It's not going to make me rich. Yeah. But, uh, and, and uh, it, you know, it's hardly bought, it hasn't even bought groceries, but I do feel good about it. Yeah. The reason I really brought this up though is because this applies to a lot of different things that you do, anything, pretty much anything you create. And so, I, I, I want to make sure people understand that like you shouldn't keep fighting for the metric. Don't, don't keep trying to get the most likes possible. Stick to what you want to do, what you believe in because that's a much better long-term goal, mm -hmm. right? You can keep climbing, climbing with more views and tailoring everything to what you know is going to be viral and stuff um, but that you're going to burn out probably because you're not going to enjoy. You're going to end up doing things you, do, you that keep taking you further and further away from what you want to do mm -hmm. and then you'll realize like, oh, this is not why I started this. And then you're either going to quit, start over or you're <laughs> going to burn out and just, just I don't know what, <laughs> what can happen from there but, but stick to, you know, long term, going a little bit slower but making meaningful, valuable stuff, long term will big up a much more stable structure for your business or for your art, for your career um, and people will respect you a lot more in the end. And you'll be happier. So, this is finding a balance between the money and the love, yeah, uh, the likes and what you deem to be the quality of your work. And not to say that you can't make some little things to please your audience every once in a while that you know are going to go viral. Yeah, have yeah. fun too, yeah. you know. <laughs> but understand that the core of what you do should be things you believe are valuable. Yeah. I'm teaching a cartooning class right now mm -hmm. at the community college which because I love cartoons. That's the reason I'm teaching it. I just, this is an excuse to spend a semester again in cartoons and cartoonists. And the first assignment is to read Gary Larson's The Prehistory of the Far Side because he talks about how he became a cartoonist. And it wasn't that he set out to be a cartoonist from the time he was young. He liked cartoons. He was influenced by them. But the main thing was that he hated his job. And he took 
I think, three weeks off from his job and during that time put together cartoons that are things he wanted to do. And I think he sold them for something like $15 a piece. And there may have been a point in there where he was selling some of these for $3 a piece, but it meant that he's getting paid to do his cartoons. And then within a matter of a year or three, he is becoming immeasurably wealthy because everybody thinks these cartoons are as funny as he thought they were when he thought them up. And they they did not, they were not original. There were artists before him, Gahan Wilson, Cleban, uh, Sergio Aragones, uh, a couple of which were not household names because they did stuff for Playboy. And so their stuff was more offensive to mainstream sensibilities. But Gary Larson sort of cleaned it up, made it more mainstream. And he did it out of hatred for his current job and out of deciding I would like to do this if I was going to do anything, getting a little money for it, doing it so well that when it took, it took big. You know, it might, 10 or 20 years earlier, it might not have taken. Uh, but there's an example of someone who was not going at this to become rich. He was going at it because he thought these cartoons were funny. Yeah. And it was someone who, yeah, he didn't, he never studied cartooning in school. <laughs> so, oh, the, really? Yeah, there's the first uh, lesson in my cartooning class is quit this class as soon as you're on a roll <laughs> with your cartoon <laughs> yeah. ideas and they're coming out of you one after another and you can get a market for them. That's funny. <laughs> I have one more thing, but I, I'll, I'll end on it. What, what do you have more to say? I think maybe some people, uh, coming into this episode that maybe not have not heard all our other episodes might be might have been hoping for like some advice on growing your social media following or something like that right like that seems to be the obvious advice for an episode like this but the reason we didn't really go into it is because we we kind of did one like at the very end of the last season and so if you're looking for social media advice uh season 2 episode like episode almost the last. <laughs> I liked that episode. I felt like there, there was some really valuable stuff in there for exactly that. No, yeah. No, I'm happy with it. Yeah. Oh, it's called The Do's and Don'ts of Social Media for Artists. So, if you guys are interested, go look that up. Go ahead. What did you want to end on? I want to end on a documentary called The Wrecking Crew. It's about musicians, freelance musicians in the 1960s they were a group somewhere between a dozen or two dozen. And if you don't care for 1960s pop music, you probably won't like this documentary. But I'm not recommending it for the music, even though the music means a lot to me because this was when I was a kid and I remember every single one of these songs. They did the music for popular songs of the time. And I mean everybody. They had nothing to do with the Beatles because they were in Los Angeles. But they had everything to do with the Beach Boys. In fact, the Beach Boys' best songs were the ones that they were doing the playing on. And they also were the musicians for Sonny and Cher and Simon and Garfunkel and the, Associ the Association and uh, Elvis and Frank Sinatra and Nancy Sinatra and also uh, TV show theme songs, the, the Bonanza theme, okay. uh, the Green Acres theme, and also commercial jingles. So, their music dominated the 1960s and nobody mm. knew them by name. They only knew the front people that they were accompanying. Yeah. The reason I'm, I'm recommending it is this is a portrait of freelancers. 
in the 1960s who were willing to get into studios and do whatever needed to be done for that project. And they were not famous in the public, but they were famous in the industry and they made great money. And this is a portrait of their careers. And it's a long arc of their careers. And even though we're talking about the better part of 60 years ago, the lessons in there for freelancers today hold still, uh, they're just as relevant now uh, about your reputation in the industry, about camaraderie, about having great skill to where they didn't even practice their instruments because they didn't need to because every time they went into a session, it was so demanding to play that music that these people were at the top of their game about how rich they got, about how the industry changed rapidly and radically and how they were at the top, but they also uh, lost those sources of income, about the tension between the profession and their families. It's just rich with content for anyone setting out to be a freelancer in the arts to get a dose of what happened in their careers. It won't be your favorite documentary, but I do think that it would be worth your time if you want a portrait of professional yeah. freelancers in the arts that's relevant for you even now. The Wrecking Crew. The Wild Ride. Good doing the podcast with you again. Yeah, Marshall. Thank you so much. It's great to hear from you. Hey, great to see your lovely face and your beard. Thank you. What are we going to talk about next week? This business of branding yourself and getting your career going, the assumption that it can happen instantly. Oh, I listen to the podcast. Now I know which direction I'm going. It won't happen instantly, typically. And so, embracing a process of scribbling to discover of doing it wrong quickly, doing it wrong several times and readjusting. I think that we might be able to make an analogy between a process of drawing that has served some artists very well and a process of designing a career. How's that sound? An episode on scribbling. Yeah. Scribbling in many different ways. Yeah. See you next week. Bye, guys. Thanks Bye. for listening and watching. It's saying it's an invalid meeting. Not a valid meeting, not a valid meeting, unable to join this meeting.